Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We just had read to us three wonderful passages of Scripture. We began with Isaiah chapter 9, which spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ and the government of the kingdom of God being placed upon His shoulder and the end of that kingdom having no end. And that is what we are dealing with in this particular series of messages that I'm bringing to you in what I've entitled the Gospel Millennium. We take a position on the millennium that was once held by most all Christians, but in the last 150 years, many have fallen off to a Jewish fable of the kingdom of Jesus Christ being limited to a 1,000-year earthly reign yet in the future. No one... Now, there were historical premillennialists, but they were few, and they had a totally different view of the issue than dispensationalists. We believe in a gospel millennium along with our fathers for 2,000 years and along with the New Testament. And what the gospel millennium is, that Jesus Christ is reigning now and has been since He ascended up from this earth and sat down at God's right hand and took the, the kingdom of David And that kingdom has been a spiritual kingdom ever since. Jesus said, my kingdom doesn't come with observation. You're never going to be able to see it on earth in the way that other kingdoms are seen. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. And we want to look further today at that kingdom. In Isaiah 9, we had read to us that the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace would become the ruler on David's throne. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts would perform it. So I don't think it hasn't happened. Jesus arrived on the scene 2,000 years ago with his cousin predecessor, John the Baptist, and they both announced, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it was at hand, and men began pressing into that kingdom under their ministries. They pressed into it by being baptized and believing on John's message that the Messiah was coming after him. Peter preached the same thing on the day of Pentecost. He preached Jesus Christ, exalted and seated at the right hand of God. And therefore, the Jews that were convicted, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God was on earth, and it's been here for 2,000 years, in the gospel kingdom of the churches of Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual kingdom. We want to continue establishing that today. Isaiah 9 was a declaration of that, of a prophecy that a son would be given, and that son would take David's government. Then in Jeremiah chapter 23, we had read to us some verses of warning about the terrible pastors that were afflicting, wounding, and starving the flock of Israel, and how that God would raise up David to be a new shepherd and pastor over them. And that David is not David literally, but David spiritually, the son of David, the Lord of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. If there are any not too familiar with the chronology of your Bibles, 
Jeremiah was written long after David had died. And so when Jeremiah speaks of David coming back to take care of his kingdom and be a pastor and a prince, he's speaking of the son of David, Jesus Christ. Then in Ezekiel chapter 34, we had the God of heaven judging between the cattle. Did you notice that there were some fat cattle? That not only did they eat up all the field and the pasture, but the field they did, the part of the pasture they didn't eat up, they trampled it under their feet. And the water, not only did they drink first, but then they stood in the water to pollute it so that no one else could eat from that pasture or drink from that water. Those were the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. The Lord Jesus said to them, You will not enter in, and you hinder those that would enter into my kingdom. You have taken away the key of knowledge by keeping the people in such ignorance of the truth of God's Word. And so we have those three chapters, all three of them. Three out of many prophecies about David, written long after David. Meaning, therefore, that David isn't the focal point of the prophecy, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of David. Remember, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the book of Revelation, presently has the keys of David. What is the key? If if our Mayor John Knox gives the key to the city of Greenville to someone, what does it mean? He's got the authority of the city for a day. He can do whatever he wants, and everyone is supposed to honor him and take care of him. When Jesus has the keys of David, he's got the authority of David's throne and David's kingdom. He opens and no man shuts. He shuts and no man opens. That's our Savior. Brethren, I fear and I dread that some of you may be a little tired of hearing about the gospel millennium. So I'm going to try to revive your hearts for a few moments this morning. There have been two great religions in the history of the world. Two. The second is far greater than the first. The first is the one that we read about and had our parents read to us from Bible story books. The Old Testament kingdom of Jehovah's reign over His people Israel. When we had those stories read to us, and for those of you who didn't have parents read those stories to you, you have read the, New Te- the Old Testament in the last ten years of your life, and you know what I'm speaking about. We would read about Mount Zion. You say, I don't remember reading much about Mount Zion. Well, the Bible says David took the stronghold of Zion. Zion was a city of Jebusites. It's where Jerusalem was then built by David. It was called Jebus. It was the capital of the Jebusites. And David and Joab took that city, and it was called the stronghold of Zion because it was built on a mountain, and it was basically impregnable. The Jebusites mocked David and Joab as they approached with their army that it was impossible to take the city. They said, we're going to stock our ramparts here with the blind and the lame. Because we believe our blind and lame can protect the city from a little army like you have. And so the Bible goes on to say, David took the stronghold of Zion. There's Zion. You know, as a boy, you read about David and how much you would have given to have been in the army with David. To have seen those 600 Gittites 
that were committing treason against the Philistines because they loved the Lord God of David. Amen. And they loved David. Gittites, the city of Goliath, of Gath. 600 of them followed David and stood around his deathbed and installed Solomon on his throne. You know, I have goosebumps right now just telling you about it and I'm telling you the truth. Because you read those stories and it provokes a great desire and a love to have been part of that kingdom. To have moved into the worship of God under David's son Solomon. To have Solomon get down on his knees and lift his hands up to heaven before the most magnificent building that had been built on earth, Solomon's temple, and to have the glory of the Lord fill that house so that the priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of God was overwhelming. To have Solomon offer 120,000 sheep and 22,000 oxen. You heard me correct. 120,000 sheep and 22,000 oxen. And if you've ever read his prayer, what a glorious worship service. And you think to yourself, oh, if I could only be there. Okay? And then we read about an angel of the Lord protecting Hezekiah and Judah against the Assyrians and killed 185,000 of them in one night. And every boy reads that verse and it says they were all dead corpses in the morning. Now that's a pretty powerful angel when he can kill 185,000 soldiers in one night. And we think to ourselves, oh, to have been with David, to have had worship like Solomon, to have had the angel of the Lord with us, defending us, how wonderful it would have been. To have seen Moses come down from Mount Sinai holding two tablets and his face glowing like an angel. And on those tablets were ten commandments given to us above all peoples of the earth written by the finger of God. Oh, if I could have only been part of that covenant where God was covenanting with me through His mediator Moses. And then Jerusalem is built. And when you crossed the plain of Jordan and you looked up toward Mount Zion and you saw on Mount Moriah the temple that Solomon built, it was stupendous, the beauty of it. Oh, if I could only see the city of God and be able to go with the happy throng that keeps Holy Day and go worship God in Jerusalem. You know, three quarters of your Bible is the Old Testament. And you read all of that and you say, what a wonderful thing to have been the people of God having God come down in a pillar of fire during the night, a pillar of cloud during the day, fill the house with His glory so priests couldn't even open the door or didn't dare walk in. I wish I could have been there and been part of that. Now, what if you were Jews? What if you were Jews and you had a temple that was so impressive and then you were convinced by the Spirit of God and by the preaching of the Gospel that Jesus of Nazareth a carpenter's son, was the promised Messiah, and that to follow him, you were going to lose your place in that temple. You were going to forsake that priesthood and all their sacrifices. You were going to turn from the law of Moses and turn to the gospel preached by some pitiful apostles that were fishermen. Could you have done it? Would you have done it? That's why we have the book of Hebrews. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews to convince the Jews that had left that Old Testament religion 
for Jesus Christ that they had made a very wise choice. That Jesus Christ and His kingdom was superior by every measure to the Old Testament. There are two great religions, brethren. The Old Testament was then reformed into the New Testament. It's called the time of Reformation, Hebrews 9.10. And we have the New Testament religion of the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 12. Now come with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses beginning at verse 22. The whole book of Hebrews is very simple. Paul is persuading in the tightest logic and the easiest verses to understand that Jesus Christ and the New Testament religion is superior to the Old Covenant and the old way of worshiping God. Over and over, by different angles, he approaches this subject. And we're here near the end of the book in Hebrews chapter 12. And these people that had followed the Lord Jesus Christ had suffered the loss of much of what they had. But here's what Paul told them in verse 22. But ye are come, ye are come, not you shall come, but ye are come. You Jews that have been baptized and followed the Lord Jesus Christ, you haven't lost anything. You've gained. Let me tell you about your gain. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Amen, Amen, brethren. This is our religion. This is what we're doing today. It's not just a religious thing on Sundays like most people engage in. We are participating in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what I mean by the gospel millennium. These Hebrews had heard the gospel, believed the gospel, were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by doing so, had come, not would come, had come to the kingdom of God. I'm going to continue this passage, but let's look at those three verses just for a moment. Ye are come unto Mount Zion. You know, the Old Testament says David took the stronghold of Zion, and young men get all excited about that great military battle that when Joab won the city for David. But we are come unto a different Mount Zion. It's a Mount Zion that's in heaven. It's a Mount Zion we've sung about this morning already. You know, no one, those that do not believe the gospel millennium, they believe the millennium is all in the future. They can't sing about Zion. They ain't come to it. We is come to it. We are come to it. It's our kingdom. It's the gospel kingdom. Look at Paul's telling these Hebrews, it's not that you're going to have this kingdom in the future sometime. It's not that you're going to have Jerusalem in some day to come that we don't know when it is. He says, you've got it right now. Ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. You know, we're, in, we're infatuated with the idea that God would come and dwell in a city on earth. And there's nothing wrong with that infatuation, but there is a better thing. Amen. And that is a city whose builder and maker is God. Not men, not Jebusites, not David, not Solomon, but the God of heaven. And that's why in chapter 11, the chapter right before this, 
The Bible tells us plainly, Abraham did not want the land of Canaan. Abraham did not care about the land of Canaan. Abraham never owned enough ground in Canaan to put the sole of his foot on. That's Stephen's sermon, Acts chapter 7. Abraham sought a heavenly country and a city built by God. The heavenly Jerusalem. That's, he was a stranger and a pilgrim in this earth, just like we are. Strangers and pilgrims here, because our kingdom is not of this world. Our kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and right now we are worshiping in close connection to that spiritual kingdom. We are part of it. We are connected to heaven by what's going on in this place. You say, but I just can't see it. I just can't see it that way. That's why Jesus said, My kingdom cometh not with observation. Quit looking with these and start looking with this. Look with the eyes of faith and you can see that we are in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just sang to our king. We just humbled ourselves in prayer to our king. We just confessed our sins to our king. We're reading our king's book to us. And we're going to live for our king when we walk out of this place. We're in his kingdom. But ye are coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice there are two Jerusalems. There's an earthly one. Jesus left that. Jesus called that earthly Jerusalem Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Revelation. Paul called that earthly Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 4, Hagar and her son Ishmael. Paul said that Jerusalem that now is, is in bondage with her children and is compared to Hagar and the bondwoman and her son shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. But Jerusalem which is above is the mother of us all. That's the Jerusalem that we are part of today. We have a city, brethren. And we're never going to be separated from it. Our citizenship can't be lost. And it can't lose a war. It's not going to be overtaken. And that's where we're going when we die. But we are in close connection with it right now. This is why this subject is important. And to an innumerable company of angels... I get stirred when I read about the angel of the Lord killing 185,000 Assyrians to protect Hezekiah and his prayer. But we have come to an innumerable company of angels. Instead of one angel of the Lord appearing, I read that a multitude of the heavenly host appeared in heaven and announced the birth of the King, Lord Jesus Christ. I see them at His tomb. I see them when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven. And I'll tell you something. Revelation chapter 5 describes what happened when Jesus left the atmosphere of this earth and then arrived in the throne room of God. It says the angels there were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power be unto our God and to the Lamb which liveth forever and ever. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that event took place 2,000 years ago in Revelation chapter 5 when Jesus ascended into the presence of God. And we have come to that innumerable company of angels. How do we know it's innumerable? Because John said it's 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Let's keep going. Verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. The Old Testament was called a church. The church in the wilderness. They had a general assembly. David would often say that he would pay his vows before the great congregation. David as a king could call the nation together on one of its three chief feast days, 
three chief feast days. And when he was there, he could pay his vows. He could offer a sacrifice before the whole nation and, and say that he was doing it before the great congregation. Well, look what kind of a size of congregation we are part of this morning. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. See, this is a local assembly. This is just a little local church. There's about 120 of us sitting in here. But we're part of a general assembly. You know how big it is? It can't be numbered. There's no attendance board on this wall except one book. It's called the Book of Life. The membership role of the general assembly is the Book of Life because it goes on to say, which are written in heaven. It's all of God's elect written in the Book of Life. Look at Paul just keeps listing things that these Hebrews had come to, had already come to 1,900 years ago. And to God, the judge of all, the great God that judged the earth with a flood that we can read about in the first few chapters of Genesis, the great God that judged the enemies of Israel, we are come to that great God. And to the spirits of just men made perfect. How many times have children heard a Bible story and said, Oh, I wish I lived in the days of Joshua. Oh, I wish I lived in the days of Samson. I want to tell you something. We are living right now with those brethren, the spirits of just men made perfect. They've been glorified in their spirit, not their bodies yet. Their bodies are waiting for us, brethren. Their spirits are in heaven, and we are in conjunction with them this morning. They're singing in heaven. I can promise you that. You think they slept in this morning? You are wrong. They did not sleep in this morning, and neither did we. That's why we're here, because we have come to an assembly that includes all of those just men that went before us, including all the martyrs of the last 2,000 years that died at the hands of Rome. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. I spoke a few minutes ago about Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. His face was glowing. He had to put a veil on. One of the few times in the Bible where a man's wearing a veil, but he had to put it on because his face was shining so bright and he had tables of stone written with the finger of God. Oh, I wish I could have been there. No, you don't wish you could have been there. That was a law that said do or die. We've come to the... He was a mediator. See, Israel didn't go up and God didn't come down. God called Moses up onto Mount Sinai. Moses was the mediator, but we have a different mediator, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the one mediator between God and men. And it says He is the mediator of the new covenant, which elsewhere in this book of Hebrews is called the better covenant, built upon better promises. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. How many times have we read Genesis chapter 4 about Abel and Cain and how God accepted Abel and his offering and God rejected Cain and his offering. And we think that was that is so wonderful that God accepted Cain and his offering. I want to tell you something. God has accepted the offering of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood of Jesus Christ is far better than any blood that Abel offered. And that is the blood that has been spilt Offered, accepted by God on our behalf. Brethren, that is verses 22 through 24. That was a present reality in 60 AD when an inspired Jewish apostle preached to converted Jews. He did not tell them, not in one verse, that there was anything held out for them in the future. 
He taught them that everything they had that was superior to the Old Testament was then and now. And that was 1900 years ago. This is ours, brethren. We have been brought in because we're Gentiles. The Jews as a nation rejected the gospel. Some Jews like these believed the gospel, like the, like our brother Paul. But then God turned to the Gentiles and sent this message to us, and the Gentiles believed it. And this is our kingdom. We're part of this. Together in one body, Jews and Gentiles, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church of God, the temple of the living God, this is us. Let's keep reading. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Verse 25. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. When God came down on Mount Sinai, it was a terrible thing. It was so bad that Moses himself, look at verse 21, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. We had someone speak to us on earth in the Old Testament. That was Moses and God through Moses. But in the New Testament, we had the Lord Jesus Christ and God through him, a mediator sent down from heaven. So it says in verse 25, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Don't you dare turn away from this covenant and kingdom that God has given you to go back to the old covenant and kingdom because if they did not escape who refused him that spake on earth, how much less are we going to escape if we refuse him that spake from heaven? Verse 26, and I've been over this, but do you know what? Repetition is part of teaching. And if you think you know this all so much, see me afterwards and I'll ask you a few questions to see how thoroughly you are grounded in the truth of Hebrews chapter 12. Because I know the answer to that. It's hard enough myself. And I'm in it all the time. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. God's voice shook the earth of Mount Sinai. It was just a quivering as it burned. And God gave the old covenant, the old religion of worshiping God. But it says in the middle of verse 26, But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. The point is this, and oh, this is just, this is, this is as good as it gets. Yet once more means there's only one more shaking, Paul said. Paul said there's only one more shaking that was to come to establish a new religion. The shaking would shake away everything that was made. It would just float away into the breeze. Whatever was left after God shook and got rid of certain things, whatever was left would be then the final form of worship because there wouldn't be another shaking. Are you all with me? Hebrews chapter 12. That's what Paul is reasoning here. Whose voice then shook the earth. Okay, when did that shaking occur? Uh, that was Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, 2,000 years B.C. Just, I'm just giving you round numbers. 2,000 years B.C., God shook the earth at Mount Sinai and instituted the Old Covenant, the old form of worshiping God. 
And Paul said there's going to be, there's, there's to be another shaking. There's to be another shaking that will shake away every part of that that doesn't belong. And whatever's left is the way that God wants to be worshipped. And there will not be another shaking. Whatever is left is the way God's going to be worshipped. It's the final kingdom of God. Now, the issue we have to ask is, when was that shaking? Or when is that shaking? Now, when we look at verse 26, But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. It sounds like it's in the future. Yet once more I shake. There's going to be a shaking that's going to get rid of things. That is because Paul is quoting Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. It's only in the future tense to Haggai. Paul would have to corrupt Haggai 2 to put it in the past tense. He puts it in the past tense by saying, now hath he promised. There's a promise that we already have that was given to Haggai 500 years ago that God was going to shake the heavens and the earth. And that doesn't mean literally. That means spiritually so that all parts of religious worship that were unacceptable to God and inferior would float away and everything that was left would be how God wants to be worshipped. Are you with me on this? This is Hebrews 12, verse 27. This word, yet once more, meaning there's only going to be one more change in the worship of God. This yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. The final worship of God. When did that shaking take place? It took place with the ministry of John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the apostles who had what the Bible calls in Hebrews 9.10, the time of reformation, they changed the worship of God. Jesus told the woman of Samaria, Woman, believe me. If Jesus says that, I think we ought to believe her. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming and now is when worship is no longer going to take place in that city of Jerusalem. Because God is seeking those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. A spiritual form of worship rather than an outward temple with blood sacrifices of animals, with incense and priests in robes. We have one priest who's in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's made all of us kings and priests. It's a spiritual religion. Jesus told the woman of Samaria that. He said, no, Jerusalem isn't where real worship occurs. The hour is coming and now is because he was in the point of transition. That's why he used the words, the hour is coming and now is. He was part of transforming the worship of God from the old to the new, and it's called shaking the heavens and the earth to get rid of those temporal elements of the old covenant. Paul has already told these Hebrews, let's just, let's just make sure we know this and understand it and see how plain and airtight the passage is. He has said in verse 22, ye are come. You are come to something that is going to be there forever. Because God shook the earth earth once at Mount Sinai, and He's shaken the earth again. You know, we went to Haggai chapter 2, and I don't have time to go there right now. Do you know what it says? God came down through Haggai because those poor Jews were standing around those stakes on the ground where they were going to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. They had come back from Babylon. They had staked out the new temple, and God said, don't be embarrassed because this thing is so small. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, 
and the desire of all nations is going to come to this house, and I'm going to give this house greater glory than I gave the former house. And the former house was Solomon's house, and God said, I'm going to give greater glory to this house. This is Zerubbabel's temple. And the desire of all nations will come. And who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ came. And in this house, in this house will I give peace. Because it was in that house that the veil was rent from top to bottom when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. That is when Haggai 2, 6 through 9 was fulfilled. God shook the heaven and the earth. All of a sudden, animal sacrifices had no more meaning because Jesus Christ had died and opened a new and living way for us into the presence of God. In that house. Zerubbabel's house. There's only two. There's only two. There's Solomon's and there's Zerubbabel's. And that's why they're compared in the Bible. Former and latter. First and second houses of God. Because now we are the temple of the living God. The church of Jesus Christ. As we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Okay. We see that. We come to verse 28. Wherefore, to prove that this is exactly what Paul meant by these verses, Paul says, wherefore, as he draws his conclusion from what he's just said, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. He doesn't say there's going to be a shaking and you will get a kingdom a long time from now that can't be moved. He says, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom because we received that kingdom with the ministry of John and Jesus who said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, that means it survived the shaking. Do you, do you understand that? Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, because Paul said the shaking would get rid of everything that could be moved. But what we've got left in 60 A.D. was the final kingdom of God. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That's why we're here this morning. We have a kingdom which cannot be moved. That kingdom that we have right now has been here for 1900 and some years, and it was established by the shakings of the heaven and the earth, not literally, but spiritually by shaking the religious form of worshiping God so that all the animal sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, what the whole book of Hebrews is about, all that old stuff floated away and was le- and what was left to us, better promises, a better covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ and all the things listed in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. Amen. You know what all that was for? This subject is important. Right. We are come unto Mount Zion in the city of the living God. Not we shall come. You know, we're waiting for this kingdom to be delivered up to God. When Jesus Christ comes the second time, He's going to gather up the the elect that are left on earth. He's going to raise all the bodies of the just. And He's going to deliver up the kingdom to God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's not going to be a new kingdom. It's just going to be delivered up to God. And we will dwell with God forever in a spiritual relationship with Him. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be among us personally in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. Until 1850 in John Darby, no one, no one limited the kingdom of God to some future millennium. No one. They all understood that the church of Jesus Christ and the priesthood of believers and Jesus Christ as our mediator, that these things had been fulfilled. They read those Old Testament passages the same way we read them this morning. A lie has been foisted, and I believed it for a long time myself. A lie has been foisted on believers 
in order to distract them from the glory of Jesus Christ into a Jewish fable that there is a millennium coming that is going to be earthly, carnal, in the city of Jerusalem, in this world, in Palestine, in this world, Jesus sitting on some little dinky throne over in the Middle East, not taught anywhere in the Bible. That is not taught. Jesus Christ is on His throne right now. He ascended up into heaven and He sat down. When He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. John and Jesus said the kingdom is here. Men were pressing into it. Paul preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. This tells us that the kingdom was already here. We have the kingdom. We're not going to let it be taken from us and put out there in the future into some Jewish kingdom. The difference between Jews and Gentiles has been wiped out by the blood of Christ. It's gone. We are one body, brethren. This is the whole New Testament. And it's called the Gospel Millennium. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. This is so important. Paul told Titus not to give heed to Jewish fables that turn from the truth. It is a Jewish fable to believe that the Jews, physical descendants of Abraham, are still God's chosen people. No, God's chosen people are those that are like Abraham by faith. Amen. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 tells us, And if... For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. We've been baptized into Christ. And it says, if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In that same chapter, Paul said, for the promises were not made to Abraham and his seeds, but to Abraham and his seed, which is Christ. The fulfillment of the promises to Abraham are spiritual. Uh, Abraham knew that. Jesus could say of Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham wasn't looking for Isaac. Abraham was looking for Christ. Abraham wasn't looking for that sandy desert over there called Israel. He was looking for a heavenly country. He was looking for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. you know what the name of that city is? It's the heavenly Jerusalem we just read about, brethren. He knew that. I wish everyone else that came along preaching about Abraham knew that. They still think that the Jews need some piece of land over there. God gave them all that land. It was based on a conditional covenant. He gave it to them. David conquered all their enemies. They disobeyed. He took the land away from them. It was a conditional covenant. He took it away. The real promises were spiritual in nature, and they can never be taken away. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4. 3 and 4. There's an interesting promise made in Psalm 95. Let me go to 3.7. Hebrews 3.7. Follow with me. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Paul's about to quote from Psalm 95. Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren. 
lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. In Psalm 95, David wrote a promise about a rest that was available for the people of God. The Holy Ghost said, I'm back in verse 7, Today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. What was David writing in Psalm 95 when he told the Jews, don't harden your hearts like your fathers did in the wilderness? Are you all familiar with that story? Moses brought Israel to the Jordan River. Across the Jordan River, they were told was the land that God had given them. They sent 12 spies. The 12 spies took 40 days searching that land out and came back. It is fantastic. Ten said, can't take it. It's just too scary. Two said, we can take it, no problem. They were Caleb and Joshua. The nation sided with the ten. And God swore in His wrath, you'll never touch that land. And they wandered around in circles for 40 years. That's what it means, saw my works. And do you know what His works were? His works of judgment upon them until that whole generation was wiped out from the age of 20 on up. Those 20 and under went in under Joshua and took that land. Only two men made it, Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses and Aaron didn't make it for their rebellion at Meribah when they did not follow the Word of God exactly in getting water out of that rock. That is way back with Moses in the wilderness. What is David writing when he says, Do not harden your hearts as in the provocation. It's not super clear, but it should be by implication. David is offering another rest to the people of God, like Canaan was to Israel. Are you with me? The nation of Israel was brought out of Egypt. They stood at the Jordan River. They didn't take it. So the next generation crossed that river on dry ground, of course, because the priests stepped into that water with the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, and the water just started piling up. And it was in the time of the flooding of the Jordan River. That's another story for another time. It's wonderful, though. Here is another rest being offered to the people of God. Canaan was a pretty great place, wasn't it? Israel went in. The cities were already built. The wells were already dug. And the vineyards had already been planted and were mature. They could just go in and eat. And they did. They defeated 70 nations and took the land in five years under Joshua. But here's David, 500 years later, writing in Psalm 95, Don't you harden your hearts like your father's, Because there's a rest. There's another rest. Do you think it's some future rest in Palestine? Do you think it's some future rest in Israel? What is that rest? Let's come over to verse 1 of chapter 4. Here's Paul writing, As a Jew, an inspired Jew, an inspired Jewish apostle to other Jews, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. The rest is the gospel millennium. I'm at rest. Moses was never at rest. He broke one commandment, didn't get to see Canaan. 
He preached a law, he preached a law for justification, do this and live. I have a message preached to me by the gospel, live and do this. He, the Lord gives me the life and says the just shall live by faith. We're in rest now because we can cease from our own works because God has done it all for us. It's the gospel rest. It's the gospel millennium. This is what Hebrews 4 is about. Note, the whole book of Hebrews is Paul trying to persuade these Hebrew Christians, don't go back. I know that you're getting persecuted. I know that it's painful out here. I know that they're all making fun of you because you don't have a priesthood. You don't have a temple. You don't have any sacrifices. I know that it's difficult, but chapter by chapter he points out the New Testament is superior to the Old. And Psalm 95 told you that there was a rest coming, and that rest is the rest of the Gospel. For they that do believe do enter into rest. This is not some future age. This is right then. When Paul wrote this in about 60 A.D. Let's just stab it at a date. You know I don't try to tell you things I can't prove from a Bible. But it was around 60 A.D. For we which have believed do enter into rest. We are the fulfillment of Psalm 95 and God promising a rest. And so it says down there in verse 9, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. If you're asking me, why did you skip six verses? Okay, I'll tell you why. Because in those six verses, Paul said, the rest that David was talking about was not the rest of the seventh day, because David wrote too late for that. It was not the rest that Joshua got them. When you read in verse 8, for if Jesus had given them rest, that is not Jesus Christ our Lord, that is Joshua in the land of Canaan. You say, well, why didn't it say so? Because when a Hebrew word comes into the Greek and then into the English, Joshua is Jesus. Amen. There's two occurrences of this in the New Testament, one in Acts chapter 7 and one right here. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ, his name to his mother was Joshua. Right. See, she didn't know English. And she didn't know Greek either. Right. She called him Joshua. And we're not going to worry about the pronunciation. I'm making it easy. Joshua into Greek into English becomes Jesus, just like Elisha becomes Eliseus, like Elijah becomes Elias. You know all that. Right? Good. Good. I just want you to know that the Jesus in verse 8 is not Jesus Christ, it's Joshua. Because what, what Paul here is doing is saying, now wait a minute, we've got, got Psalm 95. If Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? See, Psalm 95 came after this Jesus. Because this Jesus is Joshua in verse 8. Hebrews 4, 8 is Joshua. And so Paul is reasoning, why would we have Psalm 95 saying there is another rest coming if that rest was the seventh day? Because that had already been there. It couldn't be the land of Canaan because this was written after Joshua took them into the land of Canaan. And so we have the wonderful conclusion in verse 9, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And that therefore it means, if you followed my logic of verses 1 through 8, then you understand. There is a rest that David offered to the people of God. And that rest is not a kingdom out there in the future. It's a kingdom we have right now. And brethren, are you at rest or not? Are you thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for you? He thinks it's sufficient. He said, it is finished. And he sat down. Do you think it's sufficient? 
if you've heard the true gospel and believe the true gospel, you are at rest. If you don't know what rest means, next Saturday night at 6 o'clock, I will take you to Mass at St. Mary's downtown Greenville. I will take you up near the front where you can see the devoted old ladies sit there with their rosaries while they listen to that ridiculous Mass because they're not at rest. (laughs) I never disrupt a service when I go visit it, but I want to. I want to jump over that pew and land beside that lady and ask her what in the world she's doing and tell her about a rest that remains to the people of God. Because Jesus has finished His work and sat down at the right hand of God. Oh, brethren, we have a rest. We can rest. He has done it all for us. He's not going to lose one of us. And we'll soon be with Him in heaven. This is the rest that Paul taught Jews. When I read an inspired apostle that was a Jew writing to Jews and not a word is mentioned about some future kingdom, I get nervous that maybe John Darby had missed it. I get very nervous. In fact, I get very certain that he did indeed miss it. He imbibed the same Jewish fable that all the Jews of Jesus' day had. Do you know why they didn't follow Jesus Christ? They couldn't imagine following a carpenter's son. They wanted him to come into Jerusalem like David their father and blow off the Roman occupation and take over and exalt them to the preeminent nation on earth again. They were totally carnally minded and that is what the premillennial kingdom is all about. An earthly kingdom out there in Israel that's totally carnally minded, brethren. And do you know what it does? It steals from the glory of my Lord Jesus Christ who I represent this day who is seated on the throne of David and has the keys of David. And brethren, the Bible tells me he is the blessed and only potentate. Not that he's going to be, but he is. And he's about to reveal himself to this world. And I look forward to that day. And to you that believe, he is precious. And to you that believe, you have entered into rest. And to you that believe, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. This is why I'm preaching on this subject. I cannot allow false teachers to steal from you the glory of the gospel kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of points before we quit. I mean, just a short couple of points. Turn to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19. They tell us that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two different things. We just want to go back and look at the Bible. They tell us. C.I. Schofield is the one that tells us that. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two different things. That is an arbitrary decision of a man that was taught at the feet of John Darby who was so presumptuous he put his name on a Bible and had it copyrighted by Oxford University Press and sold it. A Bible which I was given at a young age and read myself. His ideas of dispensational premillennialism had never been heard before John Darby. You cannot find any commentator before 1830 that ever wrote anything close to C.I. Schofield. They did not believe in some future carnal earthly Jewish kingdom on earth where the Gentiles would be cut out again and the wall of partition between the two of us would be reinstated. Where animal sacrifices would take place before some earthly temple made with hands. My Lord Jesus Christ, according to Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, and everything I can read in the New Testament, does not dwell in a temple made with hands. He dwells in heaven above and He's going to be there until He comes for us. C.I. Schofield in his notes on Matthew 6.33 
says the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two distinct things. Well, let's see what Jesus said about that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. Matthew 19, verse 23. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, did I make a mistake in my reading? What does verse 23 say? Rich people cannot easily get into the kingdom of God. What is verse into the kingdom of heaven? What does verse 24 say? Rich people cannot easily get into the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ used them as synonyms as did all other New Testament authors. Matthew says the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence. Luke says every man presseth into the kingdom of God. Luke 16, 16. I won't even give you more examples. The comparisons can be multiplied until you would be nauseous. But they have to do that, make a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God in order to have a kingdom to stick out into the future. Lord have mercy. How did men get into that kingdom? They were baptized by John the Baptist, then then by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. I am preaching this series of messages so that you will know that Mount Zion is yours. The city of the living God is yours. The heavenly Jerusalem is yours. The Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is yours. An innumerable company of angels are yours. The spirits of just men made perfect and the general assembly is ours. All of those things in Hebrews 12, lest someone steal them away and stick them out into a future Jewish fable. They are ours. We are the true Jews and have been Always in God's mind. You know, when he saw Nathanael in John chapter 1, Nathanael was brought to him and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed. Well, what do you mean an Israelite indeed? Yeah, he's got the right birth certificate. Oh, Jesus said no. In whose heart is no guile. He was one of God's elect, born again children of God. And he was an Israelite indeed. There were a lot of those that said they were Israelites that claimed to be the children of Abraham, and they were on their birth certificates. But do you know what Jesus said of them? Ye are of your father, the devil. John 8, 44. That's when they were reasoning with him. Hey, Abraham's our father, and we've never been in bondage to any man. Jesus said, you're not even close kin to Abraham, or you wouldn't be trying to kill me. Ye are of your father, the devil. I'll tell you who Abraham's seed are. I'll tell you who's more important than the brothers and mother of Jesus Christ. Those who hear the word of God and keep it. Those are the true Jews. Paul said, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now what does that mean to you? In Romans 9, 6. In Romans 2, 28 he said, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. If you can show on a male body that he's a Jew, he ain't a Jew. Because that is not the mark. The mark is right here. Circumcised in the heart and in the spirit. That's what makes the difference. Do you know what Jesus said in Revelation 2, 2, 9 and 3, 9? He said, those people that are worshiping in synagogues are the synagogue of Satan. Ye are of your father the devil. But Jew and Gentile, 
that falls and is broken at the feet of Jesus Christ, they have the kingdom of God. And if Jesus Christ falls on those who will not fall themselves, he grinds them to powder. Matthew chapter 21. And he did, and he will. Matthew 23, 13. We had two brothers read to us from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Here's the New Testament fulfillment. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Scribes and Pharisees, the doctors of the law, the seminary-trained religious elite of Jesus' day were shutting up the kingdom of heaven. They weren't going in, and they weren't letting others enter as well. Just as we had read to us about the pastors in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34. But do you know what we're to get out of that verse for this moment? The kingdom of heaven was there. How could they keep someone out of it unless it was there, brethren? And this is one of hundreds. The kingdom of heaven was there, but they were keeping men from entering into it. So how did the men have to get into it? They had to press into it. Press into the kingdom of God. Luke 16, 16. For the law and the prophets were until John. That's why that's when the shaking took place. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Do you know how hard it was to get into the kingdom of God? You would get thrown out of the synagogue. You would be persecuted. And all the religious leaders were telling you he is an imposter and he's casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub. You would have to go against everything you had learned and stick to Scripture like Anna and Simeon did. They were in the temple. They could look at Daniel and say, the time is about to be fulfilled. Do you know what it says? It says that Anna spoke to all them that were in the temple that were waiting for redemption. They knew. They knew. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word and have mercy upon our souls and teach us these things and more important than anything else, may we live worthy of the King whom we preach.